Uh, well, hey, good morning to you. Many of you are new faces and I haven't met you. So from the bottom of our hearts here at Pork Hills Church, welcome. We're so glad that you're joining us uh, to really worship Jesus this morning, to open his word and to be the family of Jesus together. If you have a Bible, grab those. You are going to need them. Uh, I don't have an anchoring text this morning because we're going to be all over the place. So buckle up and uh, get ready. Um, but we are in a series on prayer. We are talking about talking to God and God talking to us. We believe prayer is a conversation with the divine. And this morning, I want to uh, in introduce you to the mystical concept of prayer without words. Yes, prayer without words. Uh, is anyone here in a romantic relationship? Okay, where are my married people at? Okay, in a romantic relationship of some sorts. Do you remember what it was like to go on your first date? Yes, guys, do you remember the the feelings that you had, the thoughts that were running through your mind and the moments leading up to that first date. I remember the first time that I picked up my wife, Laurel, for our first date. I was so excited. Like she was so into me and I knew it. But guys, I was really excited. I spent the weekend detailing my car. Like, like every detail was just like immaculate as if she would notice, right? But I didn't care. I was so excited to pick Laurel up on our first date. And so uh, I remember driving to pick her up and I was nervous. And my heart was like pumping as like I pulled onto her street to pick her up. And uh, I was nervous. I, I was really nervous. Like what was there to be nervous about? She was head over heels with me. We had a lot in common. We worked together. We had romantic chemistry. Like all of this stuff was moving in our favor. So what really was there to be nervous about? I remember um, the fact that we were going to a cafe, like really bothered me as I was driving there. I was driving there and be like, you idiot, why did you pick a cafe? You could have picked a restaurant, an art museum, anything other than a cafe. Why, Dan, did you pick a cafe? Because the reason why I was thinking this is there's only one thing to do at a cafe, sit there and talk. And the thing that I was nervous about is what do we do when we run out of things to talk about? What do we do when we hit a break in the conversation and I don't know what to say next? And I remember on the drive there, my heart would stop every single time there was a break in the conversation, right? And the surprising thing is it went well. We, we went to the cafe, we ordered coffee, we, we talked, we talked some more and we kept talking. There was a fact, there, there was a moment in uh, our date where I looked at Laurel and said, hey, it's kind of getting late. Maybe I should take you home. And she kept talking. I don't know if she was ignoring me or if she didn't hear me, but she just kept talking. We actually had a great night. And, and near the end of it, the barista came over to us and said, excuse me, but we're closing in a few minutes. And we looked up only to realize that everyone else was, was leaving. We had talked so much that we shut the place down. Okay. And uh, during the first few weeks and months of dating, we talked a lot. We texted we called, we, we talked as much as we, we could. And I remember there was this one time we were on a date and we were driving home late at night from Vancouver. And uh, as we were driving, Laurel was talking and she fell asleep. But as she fell asleep, she kept talking. And like after a few minutes of gibberish, she came to and she's like, oh my gosh, I'm so embarrassed. I don't even know what I just said. But the reality is we just couldn't stop talking. But the fear was still there, if I'm honest. The fear of what happens when we finally run out of things to talk about, when we run out of words to say to one another? And I think this is one of the great fears of intimacy, isn't it? If we're honest, this is one of the fears that many of us have. What if we run out of things to say? What if things grow stagnant? What if 
you know, we're not in love at 50 like we were at 20. What do we do if the, the, the flame flickers, the interest fades? See, in the early moments of dating, I believed that our intimacy was only as deep and strong as our conversation. But what if true intimacy only begins after the conversation ends? What if intimacy really only starts to take form when we can move beyond words? See, in prayer, what we do is we often riddle off a task list at God. We talk at God. And, and, and what happens is after we have said everything we possibly can think of, after we poured out our entire heart's desire to God, we look down at our iPhone only to realize that 30 seconds have gone by and we still have like so much more time and so many more things to say. See, what if there's a form of intimacy that goes beyond words? What if there's a way to be with God once the words have run out? In Luke chapter 5, if you have a Bible, Luke chapter 5, verse 16, the, uh, the disciple Luke writes that Jesus often withdrew to the lonely places and prayed. That word lonely places is the Greek word eremos. It, it's translated here as lonely place. Other places it's translated as the wilderness, the desert, the solitary place, the lonely place. The idea here that Luke is conveying is that Jesus went to a place where he could be absolutely alone with his father in prayer. Jesus himself made a regular practice of being alone with the Father in the Ramos. Now, in Luke chapter 4, we see Jesus in the wilderness again. This time, he spends 40 days in the Ramos. Now, th think about this. What do you do for 40 days in the wilderness? I've gone camping for like three days. I, I can't even imagine camping for 40 days by yourself in the wilderness right? Luke tells us that he did two things. He fasted and prayed, and he was tempted by the devil. Now, the second part I get, right? If you're in the wilderness for 40 days all by yourself, I, I'm going to imagine it's going to feel like hell. I get that. But he prayed. For 40 days, Jesus prayed. Imagine how hard that would be. You, at some point, you would just run out of things to say. Like, I run out of things to say as soon as somebody brings up sports, right? All you have to do is bring up the NBA or baseball or any other sport, and I'm out. It's just like dazed over, right? I've got nothing to say. I can't sit through. This is like an honest confession. I cannot sit through the Lord of the Rings. Okay, anyone else with me? I know this is heresy. I cannot sit through the Lord of the Rings without falling asleep. That movie is only three and a half hours, 40 days in the wilderness. You would just simply run out of things to say. Now, I've got to imagine that Jesus does a lot more in his prayer life in these 40 days than just rattling off a list of things that he wants God to do for him. If that was all that he did, he would have run out of things to say and still had 39 more days in the array months. See, what we see in the life of Jesus is a form of prayer, a form of intimacy with his father that is beyond words. It is a form of intimacy that is simply about being with God. See, we were made for intimacy, weren't we? We were made for connection, relationship, and community. This is fundamental to who you are. You were made by design, by the creator, for intimacy. Now, the secular story is that you were nothing more than a bag of, of atoms and cells. I know it's a romantic picture, but this is the secular worldview. See, there is no such thing as love because you were simply an animal. Your emotions are just a chemical reaction in your brain. So when your spouse looks at you and says, I love you, while they think that they are sincere in this, they are only communicating a chemical reaction in their, their brain produced to, to uh, preserve their species. There is no such thing as love. 
It is a chemical reaction in the brain. See, in the naturalistic worldview, there is no category for love. Love cannot be observed, it cannot be touched, and it cannot be seen. It is a spiritual reality. It cannot exist in a world of matter alone. Within this worldview, love is reduced to a chemical reaction in the brain, and it does not exist. See, love, according to the secular worldview, love is an illusion unless there is a God. But something within you, if you're honest this morning, something within you knows that love is real. You know it not only because you experience it, because something in you longs for it. You long to be loved at the deepest level of your being. You were created for intimacy. God made you for relationship. Now we read in the book of Genesis about the creation of the world and over and over, God says that his creation is good except for one time. Genesis 2.18, God says it was not good for the man to be alone. Have you ever pondered on the complexity and, and reality that God said for one thing in his creation is not good and that thing is that the man is alone? What this means is that you were created for relationship, for connection, and for intimacy. And God, the creator of the universe, made it this way which means God is more passionate about intimacy with you than you are. God is actually concerned about connecting with you today. God is more interested in showing up in your life than you are. God created you for connection. See, the entire story of the Bible is about a God running after you. It's about seeking after you to save you. Now, the author of Ecclesiastes, whoever she was, we don't know who the author of Ecclesiastes is per se, but the author of Ecclesiastes says that God placed eternity in your heart, meaning there is a longing for something transcendent within your heart, something that can't be satisfied by the things of this world. You were made for connection and for intimacy, and there's something in you that knows this is true, and your soul longs for it. There's nothing in this world that can satisfy this longing. But so many of us feel as if God is distant, don't we? We feel like God is far away, that he's removed, that he's, that he's not close to our situation and a reality, that he's not even aware of it. But what if the opposite is true? What if God is closer than you think and more available than you ever imagined? See, our problem isn't that God is distant. Our problem is that we are distracted. See, it can be almost impossible to be alone with God in the, from the crowds and the noise. It seems like we live in a world of constant buzz and notification and distractions. But, but we live in a world that makes it very difficult for us to be alone and to be with God. For example, you touch your phone on average 2,617 times a day. Yes, you touch your phone that many times. 2,617 times. Now, uh, Apple has released that the average iPhone users uh, touch, uh, unlock their device six to seven times every single hour. Most of us can't imagine using the bathroom without watching reels on our phone. Like, like, think about how crazy that is, that you can't go to the bathroom without scrolling reels. We are bombarded with noise and distraction. It's difficult to get away and simply be with God. Our problem is not that we, that God is distant. Our problem is that we are distracted. So what we need is we need to learn to be with God. And like Jesus, we must learn to get alone with God in the Eremos. I believe that one of the most important things in the Christian life is simply to learn to be with the creator, to simply learn to be with the God of love who made you. See, contemplative prayer, it, it, it's not mysterious, it's not complicated, it's not detached from you. Contemplative prayer is simply being with God. The prophet Isaiah writes in Isaiah 29, 13 and says that these people come to, near to me with their mouths 
and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. See, in prayer, we don't want to just bring our words to God. Prayer is so much more than talking at God. We don't want to just bring God our words. We want to bring God our hearts, our entire self to God in prayer. See, it's not enough to talk at God. We must learn to be with God. And the crazy thing is that our prayer lives reveal how much we want to be with him. Like, can you imagine if I hadn't spent, you know, a few weeks with Laurel, I'd been away or something like that. And, and it has been a while since I've seen her or talked to her or had any communication with her. And I show up one day and said, hey, Laurel, uh, I know I've been away for a little while. I know I haven't seen you. I know I haven't talked to you, but here's a list of things that I need from you. Uh, imagine if that was my intimacy with my wife. She would slap me upside the head. There is no connection in that. There's no intimacy, no love, and really no marriage. And yet so many of us think that prayer is reduced to taking a list of things and saying, God, I know I haven't talked to you in a while, but here's the things I need from you. See, prayer isn't just about a, a, a relationship that's contractual and things that we need from him. No, relation, relationship requires that we actually be with the one that we're in relationship with. See, God is not a cosmic vending machine. God is your father and he loves you. He made you for relationship and he longs to be with you. So we must learn to be with God. See, we need a form of prayer that is deeper and more profound than a prayer list, which is good. But what we need is a relationship with God that is actually founded on intimacy, connection, and relationship. It is a form of prayer that is beyond words. Now, some of you are rightly thinking and asking this morning, is this biblical? Great question, right? Is this biblical? Is this form of, of prayer actually found within the pages of scripture? Is this actually something that God has commanded us? Because if we're honest, this sounds more like new age meditation or, or some sort of like new age prayer and not biblical prayer. So is this biblical? Well, the short answer is yes, absolutely. This is biblical. All throughout the pages of the Old Testament, as well as the New, we see forms of prayer that are without words or uh, that are contemplative. For instance, uh, David writes in Psalm 62, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. Or Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory. So all throughout the pages of the Bible, we see uh, silence and solitude, being away with God in the wilderness. We see uh, a form of prayer that is being still before the Lord or being quiet before the Lord. But the clearest answer to the question of, is this biblical, is found in the life of Jesus himself. See, Jesus regularly engaged in a form of prayer that was contemplative or was simply about being with God, a prayer that is beyond words. What's crazy is we see Jesus escaping the crowds, the noise, and the ministry so that he can on many occasions be alone with the Father. And what's so in interesting is, is the amount of times, the frequency of Jesus' escape to be with the Father in the Ramos. See, what we realize in the life of Jesus is that the God of the universe the creator and sustainer of all things, needed himself to be alone with his father. So how much do we need to? See, Luke tells us that Jesus often withdrew to the lonely places and prayed. How often? Well, often enough for, for Luke to say that it was a lot of times. It, it was so many times that he said that this was actually his regular practice. Jesus, like I said before, spent 40 days in the wilderness before he stepped into public ministry. But if you have a Bible in Mark chapter 1, we see one of the most profound examples of this form of prayer. It says in verse 32, after evening, uh, that evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. Imagine that guest list, okay? And the whole town gathered at the door. 
And Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drew out, drove out many demons. Verse 35, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to the Aramos where he prayed. Jesus was probably exhausted. Imagine the entire town showing up. Everyone's got various diseases and even demons. Like, what do you do with that? I don't even have a category for demons. And, and Jesus is healing the sick and he's casting out demons. He's doing ministry to the entire town. He would have went to bed totally zonked and exhausted. What, what would you expect Jesus to, to do in the morning? I, I tell you what I would do. I'd probably sleep in, set my alarm to like 11, 11 a.m., and then go out for brunch with the 12, 12 boys. That's what I would do. But that's not what we see Jesus doing. Jesus says he got up while it was still dark, very early in the morning, and he went off to a solitary place where he was alone with the Father. For some reason, the God of this universe needed to slip away from the noise and the distractions and the ministry so that he could be alone with his Father and pray. In fact, there's this one particular time where we see Jesus in this form of prayer where he's crying out to his father with, with very few words, Abba, Father, if there's another way. These aren't long, extensive prayers from Jesus. He says, Abba, if there's another way, what Jesus is doing here is he's crying out to help from his father. He's in such physical and emotional pain that he's actually sweating drops of blood. See, Jesus here is rocked to his knees. He's gut punched. He's, he's weak and vulnerable. And for the first time, he is scared out of his wits because he knows for the first time that on the cross, he will be outside of communion with the Father. And what's crazy is that the very thing that brought the God of this universe to his knees, think about that. This is a God who needs no one and nothing. He is brought to his knees. He's crippled. He's, he's buckled and brought low and he's terrified. And the very thing that brings the God of this universe being out of connection with his Father is the very way you and I live our everyday lives, out of communion with the Father. His agony has become our normal. See, this kind of prayer is all throughout the Bible, but is particularly all through the life of Jesus and his early followers. It's a form of prayer that is about intimacy with the one who loves you. Michael Reeves defines prayer as learning to enjoy what Jesus himself always enjoyed. What we need is to make space to be with God. What we need is to hear his voice and to have a relationship with the Father and be transformed by his presence. This was the practice of Jesus, his early followers, and it must be a practice that marks the lives of followers of Jesus today. We need to make space to be with God and to learn to pray without words. See, the conversation, as I said before, only begins when we're finished talking. When we run out of words to say, we can simply realize that there is a God who has always been there waiting for us to be with him. See, what if our deepest doubts and questions come not from the question of God's existence, but what if our deepest doubts, if we're honest, comes from the doubt that God notices my existence? See, the problem isn't that God doesn't notice our existence. It's that we're not aware of him noticing us. There's a story in the book of Genesis of this woman named Hagar. And Hagar is a slave and she's an Egyptian woman and she's a, she's a slave to this man and woman named Abraham and Sarah. And Sarah is supposed to be a follower of Yahweh. She's a follower of God. And, and the problem is that she mistreats Hagar. She uses her like an object. And when she's done using her, she throws her away in, like trash. And what we see in Genesis 16, we find Hagar as a single mother wandering around in the heat of the desert, wondering if anyone or anything can help her. And so she does the only thing she can think of. She cries out to the God of Sarah. 
And there in the wilderness, she cries out to God and says, God, I don't even know if you notice me. I don't even know if you see me. And all of a sudden, God shows up. And when God shows up, she is so shocked and overwhelmed because God actually sees her. And so what she does is she names God. This woman has the audacity to give God a name. And she calls God El Roi, which means the God who sees me. For the first time, this woman is seen for more than an object. For this first time, she is seen than more than a slave, more than something or an object to be used. She is seen by the God of Sarah. And so she understands profoundly that she is deeply and profoundly loved. And she is seen by the God of the universe. There's another story in the Gospel of Mark. And it's a story of a rich young ruler who comes to Jesus. And when Jesus speaks to this rich young ruler, it's one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible. In Mark 10, 21, it says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Did he know that? Did this man know that Jesus looked at him with eyes of love? That the God of all creation stood before him, gazing at him with eyes of infinite love? Did he know that all of the love and affection that he so desperately hoped to find in his stuff was staring at him straight in the face? Did he know this? The Bible says that this man walked away sad. I wonder if he walked away sad because he didn't realize the true love incarnate was standing before him, looking at him and seeing him. God looked at him and saw him. See, it was never about the stuff for Jesus. It was never about the stuff. It was about getting the stuff out of the way so that he could see that there is a God standing in front of him, looking at him and loving him. And so could it be that we're so utterly distracted like this man that we cannot see the God who looks at us and loves us? Could it be that we're so preoccupied with things of this world to ever notice that the God of the universe looks at us with eyes of infinite love? See, I believe that one of the deepest pains within the human soul is the doubt that God notices my existence. Does God see me? Does he notice me? Does he even care? Does the God of this universe notice my seemingly small existence? See, what we need is not a sermon, a podcast, another song, book, or theological insight. What we need is to behold the eyes of God ablaze with unquenchable love, staring in our direction. See, there is something profound, something beyond words that happens when a human being is erupted with the love of God within their being. Something happens within you that is beyond human description that happens when you experience the love of God. It is a love beyond words. So I've been married to Laurel for three years. I know it's not a long time, okay? Uh, but we've been married for the last three years. And um, there's this thing that, that, that people say that you become more like your spouse the longer you're together. Anyone hear that? Yeah? You're, no one's heard that? That's cool. Okay, so you're hearing it for the first time. The longer you're with somebody, the more you become like that person. And uh, the other night, Laurel and I were doing our expenses, okay? And uh, what you need to know is Laurel is way more organized than I am, okay? So I just talk a lot. She is organized, okay? That's how our relationship works. And so we're, so we're sitting down to do our expenses, and uh, we notice that there's an expense missing. And we go back months of, of expenses and we realize it's been missing two, three, four, seven months this has been missing. And, and we, what we realize is that Laurel hadn't been paying her car insurance. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you are a mad woman driving around with an uninsured car. What are you doing? And, and honestly, guys, I felt a little bit good about myself because I'm like, for the first time ever, I have been more responsible than my wife. Like she is so organized. You've got to understand this. And guys, I, I know I shouldn't feel this way, but I felt like for the first time, I was more organized than her. 
And, and I guess it's true what they say that I know you haven't heard it, but you become more like the person that you're with. She became, you know, I guess like me and I became organized and responsible. Now, those of you who've been married for a long time, have probably experienced this. You probably have become like the person that you're married to. And you've probably weathered different storms and been through all the seasons of love and come through the other side. You know, I think if you sat down with somebody who's been married for a long time, let's say 40 years, they would describe a very different kind of love that they experience now than when they first met. I think they would describe to you and tell you that there's a different kind of love that they experience because it's one thing to look into somebody's eyes and wonder what they're going to say next. It's quite another thing to look into somebody's eyes and know that you're loved beyond words. This is the deep form of intimacy that God wants to show to you. This is what contemplative prayer is all about. It is about look, looking into the eyes of the one who loves you, the one who made you, and the one who, who John says is by definition love and realizing that you are loved beyond words. It is simply beholding God's gaze of love. So how do we do this? It sounds mystical. It sounds, you know, unpractical. How do we engage in prayer without words or contemplative prayer? Well, the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3.18, and he says this, And we all, who with unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is not on my notes, but notice who Jesus or who Paul claims to be the Lord of the universe, the Spirit. We worship the Spirit. So to contemplate, he says that we contemplate the Lord's glory. The, the Oxford Dictionary dis, defines uh, contemplating as to look at thoughtfully for a long time. It, it's to hold something before your mind or your eyes. It's what the, the psalmist says in Psalm 27, 4, when he says it's that we gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Or as um, the author of Hebrews writes, that we fix our eyes on Jesus. Here, Paul is telling the story of Moses who goes up a mountain. And on that mountain, um, Moses asks God to see his glory. He wants to see his backside, his glory, his kavod. And God shows him what he's like. He passes by him and he sees his glory. And what happens is Moses goes down that mountain and his face is blindingly bright to those around him. It's like the, the kavod or glory of God has gotten on him and he can't wash it off. He can't get it off him. He's just shining. It's blinding, blindingly bright to those around him. And so everyone convinces him like, dude, you've got to cover that up. It is like blindingly bright. So he puts a veil over his face. And Paul here is saying in the same way, when we contemplate the Lord's glory, as as if we're seeing God in what he calls with eyes of, or with an unveiled face. What he means by that is we don't see God in part. We see God in full display, but how? Paul says that we contemplate God's glory. We set God before our minds and our eyes. And when we do, Paul says that we're transformed. We, we put God before our minds. We simply be with God and look at Jesus. And something happens when we see God with unveiled faces. See, contemplative prayer is simply being with God and looking at Jesus. So how do we do this? I want to give you three steps to contemplative prayer. The first step is we show up. We show up. In Luke 11, 1, it says, One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. Now, it's safe to assume that the location mattered. What I mean is that Jesus had a time and a place in his schedule to pray. Uh, another example is on the day of Pentecost. We, we see the disciples praying together in the upper room. And it says that the Holy Spirit filled the room where they were all sitting. It goes on to say later 
that all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. Did you catch the order, the rhythm, the progression here in the text? It says that the Holy Spirit filled the place before he filled the people. This is what the ancient Celtic Christians called a thin place. It's a place where God's presence has become near to us. It's where heaven and earth, the barrier between heaven and earth has worn thin and we can experience God all around us. We can see heaven and God's space invading our space. So from Jesus to Pentecost and all throughout history, there is a long tradition of having a place of prayer. So my only point is this, where is your thin place? Where is your place of encountering God? Do you have a time and a place to encounter him? My wife, Laurel, has this really old chair that's been in her family for a long time. And this is her thin place. Each morning she wakes up, I make her coffee because that's my job. And uh, she sits in that, that chair and she opens her Bible and she prays and she encounters God in that thin place. We need to have a time and a place to encounter God. I know this is simple, but many of us do not have a time and a place set aside to be away from life's distractions, to simply be with God. Because I believe that most of prayer is just simply showing up. Ronald Rollheiser says that there is only one non-negotiable rule for prayer. Show up and show up regularly. So do you have a time and a place, a thin place to encounter God's presence? So we show up. Number two, we shut up. Second, we must learn to shut up. We often think of prayer as talking to God or talking at God, and it is. But more often than not, we need to, uh, as the psalmist says, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. The picture here is of Mary, who is wasting time sitting at the feet of Jesus while her sister Martha is busy and productive in the kitchen. I think spending time with Jesus, I like to call it, or Henry Nowen likes to call it, wasting time with Jesus. I think that is beautiful. And this is what prayer is. It isn't always productive because it's not about productivity. It's not about being effective. It's about connection. It's about intimacy. So we must learn to waste time with Jesus. And to do that, we must simply learn to be quiet. See, elsewhere, God says to be still and know that I am God. In other words, we need to learn to be with God. Like all things, there is a time to speak and there's a time to be silent. And, you know, I think sometimes we complain, and rightly so. I think we, sometimes we complain that we can't hear God's voice or we can't sense his presence. But very rarely do we ever quiet ourselves enough to be still, to hear his still small voice and to sense his presence within us. See, silence is simply positioning ourselves before God to be with him and to hear him speak. Without silence, we shouldn't expect to hear God speak or to sense his presence around us. We must learn to get away, like Jesus, from the crowds and distractions to be with God. Pete Gregg writes and says, if we want to get better at hearing the one who speaks in a still small voice, we must befriend silence. If we are to host the presence of the one who says, be still and know that I am God, we must ourselves become more present. See, when we quiet ourselves and listen, we may find like Moses that we are standing on holy ground more often than we think. When we actually quiet ourselves and come to silence, we may realize that God has been speaking the whole time. So we show up, we shut up, and then we look up. So when this is what contemplation is. It is looking at the face of Jesus. It is looking at the God who loves you. And can I let you in on a little secret? Sometimes nothing happens. I don't want to give you guys uh, you know, unrealistic expectations. Sometimes you show up and you're quiet before the Lord and nothing happens. So why do you show up anyways? Like what, what's the point? 
because he is the one that your soul was made to connect with. He is the one that your soul loves. Like, imagine if I stopped spending time with Lorel because every time we were together, something didn't happen. And all the guys know what I mean by something, right? Like, this isn't how you measure the quality of intimacy within a relationship because that, that relationship is so much more than just giving like a heavy revy and goosebumps, right? It's about connection. It's about intimacy. It's about having a relationship. So the criteria of a successful time with God is not the feeling that we get or the revelations that we receive. It's about spending time enjoying one another. Um, C.S. Lewis writes that, I believe that many who find that nothing happens would find that their heart sings unbidden. What he meant by that is sometimes when we're engaging in something where it seems like nothing is happening, C.S. Lewis writes and says that there's something within us underneath the surface where our soul is singing unbound and there's something happening underneath the surface. We might not notice it, but something truly is happening. But our only job is to gaze at God's face. It's to look at the one who is love. Our job is to simply to be with him and waste time with Jesus. Sometimes it's like a heavy revy where it just like hits you. It's a loud booming voice from heaven. Other times it is enough to be in the presence of God. It is enough to rest and to know that he is the good shepherd. Think of it this way. When you spent uh, time as a kid out in the, the summer sun, I know that you guys didn't get a lot of summer sun uh, in Vancouver, but I did on the East Coast. And I would be out in the summer doing my thing, playing on the beach. And my mom would call me inside and it was like, the room is so dark. Anyone experience this? And there's like this like blinding like ring of light in your vision and that's all you can see. Or it's like when you wake up in the middle of the night and you go to the bathroom, you flick on the bathroom light and it's like blindingly bright and you can like barely open your eyes. In both of those scenarios, the room has not changed in its brightness or dimness. In both, like it's not that the room is brighter or less bright. It's that you have been in an environment that has changed your perspective. You have allowed yourself to be in an environment that has actually changed the way that you see everything around you. This is what Paul meant when he said, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed. When we spend enough time looking at God, it transforms us. We can't see things the same way anymore. Uh, there was a study published in 2014, and uh, it was a study done on all these college students. Okay, it sounds like a fun study. They would put these uh, college students alone in a room, and they would sit them there for 20 minutes, and they could just sit there with their thoughts. Or they could push a button, which would give them an electric shock, and they could leave. And the choice was theirs. They could sit in silence or be electrocuted. 67% of the men and 25% of the women chose electric shock over boredom. What this shows us is that we are distracting ourselves to death. I believe we are distracting ourselves into oblivion. We are allergic of the idea of simply being still and alone with our thoughts. We are so addicted to entertainment. I think we are distracting ourselves to death. So what do we do? I think it's time we rebel. I think it's time we push back against the endless amount of distraction. I think we actually start to wake up and realize that it is time for us to waste time in the presence of Jesus once again. I think we must learn to show up, shut up, and look up and behold the God, God's eyes of infinite love staring in our direction. I believe that it is our time to recapture the vision of prayer that is beyond words, that is simply beyond taking God a prayer request list, which is beautiful and good and part of prayer, but we move beyond that and actually spend time with the one that we were created to connect with. This is what prayer could be for many of us. So what does this look like? Well, maybe you took, and this is how you rebel, right? This is how you like 
push back and be part of the resistance. You take three minutes tomorrow morning or in the evening. You can't drink coffee then, but do it in the morning. There's coffee. And you take time and you spend time in the presence of Jesus. You just simply close your eyes and you become aware that God is here and he is Father. You become aware of God's presence and you bring God before your mind. And when, not if, but when your mind is distracted, when you wander off, you simply bring your mind back to God and spend time with God for three minutes. That's it. Or maybe you can go to the back of the room and at the back of the room, there's a, a few cards there, which are uh, practices from the life of Jesus. Two that are probably most relevant are a silence and solitude card or a Lectio Divina card. Those are, if those are just weird Latin words to you, those are just two forms of contemplative prayer or being with Jesus. And so what we need to do is simply show up and spend time in the presence of God and waste time enjoying God's infinite love. So when Laurel and I were dating in conclusion, uh, there was this moment where we were just sitting on a couch watching a movie and um, I guess I was daydreaming because all of a sudden I heard Laurel say, hey, what are you looking at? And I was like, like looking right in her direction. I was like, oh, nothing. Like I wasn't, I wasn't thinking about anything. In reality, I was actually thinking about how much I love her and I was caught up in thinking about that. And I hadn't said those words to her yet. So I, I lied to her and said, oh, I actually wasn't thinking about anything. I guess I was just daydreaming about the movie. And she kept pushing, right? She was very persistent. So she said, no, what, what were you thinking about? And so I told her, actually, I was thinking about the fact that I love you. And I just said it. And in a perfect world, she would say that back to me, right? You guys are with me? That's what would happen? That is not what happened. And, and I believe that she did in that moment, but she wasn't ready to say those words, okay? And, and actually for, for, for days, okay, for, for two days, I think, for two days, she said nothing. And then all of a sudden, one day, she said, I love you too. I think this is what contemplative prayer is. It is to, about positioning ourselves in the presence of God so that sometime, maybe not today, but sometime we can hear the voice from heaven saying, I love you. I love you too. I think this is what every soul in here longs to hear. It's the reason why we struggle with sin and doubt and pain and, and, and we see our world crumbling apart because I think within every single human being, there's a child within wanting to be loved by their father. And so what prayer is, is positioning ourselves to hear, maybe not today, but sometime God echoing from the heavens, I love you. I've always loved you. And what's so profound is those words have always been echoing from the voice of your father. We have just simply become aware of it.